Welcome to the Doug and Birch Legal Visionaries Podcast, brought to you by Interactive Legal. Here's your host, Mary Vandenack. Welcome to today's episode of Legal Visionaries, a weekly podcast discussing updated legal news, as well as evolving methods of providing legal service. I'm Mary Vandenack. I will be your host as we talk to experts from around the country about legal and tax issues, trusts and estates, business succession and exit planning, law practice technology, management and leadership, and upon occasion, well-being. First, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Foster Group, Veterans Victory Housing and Business Centers, and Carson Private Client. Here's a message from Interactive Legal. Technology has become an essential part of our daily lives. However, not all fields have embraced technology. Lawyers, especially estate planning attorneys, need to stay up to date with specific laws and any issues affecting taxes and wealth preservation. Implementing an automated drafting system can help lawyers spend more time with their clients and less time doing back office tasks. Estate planners and law professionals turn to Interactive Legal as their main resource for the latest planning strategies. Interactive Legal provides the most comprehensive productivity system on the market with an easy-to-use document drafting system, extensive continuing education, thought-provoking discussion forums, and more. With Interactive Legal, attorneys get to spend more time with their clients. It's time to connect, collaborate, and create. To learn more about Interactive Legal, visit interactivelegal.com. Wealth planning focuses on liquidity management and charges you a fee based on a percentage of your assets. But entrepreneurs typically invest in their business, resulting in light liquidity. That requires a unique strategy. At Carson Private Client, we provide a proactive and holistic strategy for building and protecting your wealth. Our mission is to alleviate the stresses and the burdens of coordinating all of those financial strategies. Carson Private Client will work with your current team of advisors to customize a strategy that manages all aspects of your life and wealth, giving you back the time to focus on what matters most. Complex needs require sophisticated solutions. Reach out to our office at 402-779-8989 to schedule your consultation. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. On today's episode, my guests are Molly Gron and Alyssa Quinlan of Hindman, an internationally recognized fine art auction house founded and headquartered in Chicago with regional offices in 16 cities in the United States and operating six sales rooms, more than any other auction house in the country. I actually didn't know that fact until I read this bio. That's, that's a cool fact. So Molly is the Senior Vice President and Managing Director of Trust, Estates, and Private Clients at Heinemann, having joined the firm in 2015. She manages and develops relationships with trust officers, fiduciaries, estate planning attorneys, and professional advisors from across the country. Alyssa is CEO of Hindman Auctions. She oversees strategy and day-to-day operations, as well as the firm's ongoing expansion in locations, services, and expertise. She has 25 years of diversified business experience with leadership experience in private banking and wealth management, 
in addition to fine art auction and appraisal services. I asked Molly and Alyssa to participate in today's episode to discuss a topic that they titled The Importance of Properly Prepared Valuations and Appraisals. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having us, Mary. Thanks, Mary. Well, Molly, could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got started working in trust and estates at Heinemann? Sure. Uh, well, uh, I have been long exposed to the art world. Uh, I give a lot of credit to my mom. She was an art mom when I was growing up in school. And so I got to go to the Art Institute uh, every here in Chicago, you know, every once a month on Saturdays where they would teach the curriculum to different moms and they would come and she would do it at our school. So I had this wonderful exposure from a very young age. And then I started working for an appraiser. I grew up in Wheaton, Illinois, and there's a wonderful appraiser named Judy Martin. And she uh, had three businesses. She was in a, she had an appraisal business. She had a consignment store and she did estate sales. So I was cooking with her all over the Western suburbs uh, in the summer. I definitely missed my job at the golf course, uh, but this was my real first step into uh, uh, the art world. And then I studied it in school. Uh, and then I moved to New York and went through the Sotheby's program and started working for Bonhams in New York, where I worked there for, for several years. But I always really loved working uh, with the trust and estates department there. And that really led me to where I had always wanted to go. And that was to law school. So I moved uh, to Chicago in 2011. And there's a few schools uh, around the country that have a real focus on art and cultural property. And DePaul uh, here in Chicago is one of them. They're really well known for it. It's led by the wonderful Patty Gerstenblith. Uh, and that was really uh, where I where I had wanted to go. And I'm admitted to practice in Illinois. And I was just studying for the, the New York bar. I thought I was going to move back to New York. But then I met Leslie Heinemann. Uh, and she was like, why would you go back to New York? You should stay here in Chicago and you should work in our trust and estates department. And uh, I will be with the firm for nine years this spring. Awesome. And Alyssa, what about yours? Can you share a little bit about your history and background? I, I think your background's in finance, correct? It is, yes. Uh, and shout out to art moms. My mother was an art mom as well when I was growing up. So I guess we had that commonality. Uh, I graduated from DePaul University, which is in Greencastle, Indiana, uh, a small liberal arts college, and studied English literature there and economics and knew I wanted to go into some sort of corporate or business world uh, position, but I really didn't know exactly what. One of the careers that I was interested in was being a management consultant. So out of college, I went into management consulting and I did that for a few years. I was going on to different projects. I was traveling 95% of the time, which I thought was a lot of fun uh, for a little while, but I realized that long-term that wasn't something I necessarily wanted to do. And one of the first projects that they had me on was in New York, and I fell in love with the culture and the pace of the, of the city. So I ended up moving there, and that is actually when I got into asset management. I was working uh, on a mutual fund sales desk for several years. Sadly, I was there over 9-11, and uh, post 9-11, we lost our building. It was at Seven World Trade Center that came down uh, after one and two in the afternoon. So I was reverse commuting from uh, Manhattan to Stamford, Connecticut, 
for a, a couple years after that. And then in 2003, decided to move back to Chicago, where I'm originally from. And it was at that time that I started looking outside of the finance industry. And uh, through a friend, I heard that Leslie Heinemann had the auction business, Leslie Heinemann Auctioneers. And I went to an auction and I thought it was very exciting. It had a fast pace and there was a lot going on. And uh, essentially introduced myself and she convinced me to to start at the firm as well as an account executive. So that was kind of my foray and entry into the, the auction business. So let's talk a little bit about, and we were at a lunch just last week where it was really interesting because there's a lot of conversation about auctions and appraisals. That was kind of fun because I think I know a little bit about the topic. I learned a ton, but let's just explain for our listeners the auction industry generally. Sure. Well, as you mentioned, the the firm was founded by by Leslie Heinemann, um, and in terms of just the auction industry as a whole, what we are tasked with doing is essentially putting buyers and sellers together. So we are a marketing firm. We are there to not only tell stories, but to be able to sell property and find a buyer at the top price. So we do have two sides of the business. We have the auction business as well as an appraisals division, which we'll talk about in a little bit more uh, detail. But in terms of on the auction side of things, the property comes from either estates, private individuals, or museums and institutions. And we get property from all over the country, and then we find buyers globally. So when we take property in, we assess the value of it, we put it, we take images of it, and we put it up for market, and then we find buyers that could be all over the world. So I'm going to ask a couple questions that might be a little off of what we talked about before we started, but let's just, I just really want to give, make sure listeners understand like what the auction industry and what companies like Hyman do when, when we would call you. So let's just say, for example, that this will be an easy one, that I have a client who collects arts and sculpture, still living currently. But let's say that step one is we're planning their estate and we just want to know the value. I can call a company like Heinemann and get an appraisal done to help them understand the value of the artwork. Is that correct? That's exactly right. Um, Our firm has been around for 40 plus years, and for all of those 40 years, our firm has prepared appraisals for exactly that reason. People go through different stages of their collecting legacy. Um, When they're in the acquisitions phase, they're actively looking for things to add to their collection. Sometimes they end up holding on to that property for many, many years. And sometimes they start selling it during their lifetime, or sometimes they hold on to it all the way up, up until they're till they're passing. But for those clients who are living, they oftentimes, at the urging of people like you, Mary, uh, that they should seek an appraisal so that you all, their advisors, have a real understanding of the value of these pieces. Should they be taking extra care to set something up uh, into a trust or should they be selling this before they're you know before they're passing and it often leads to conversations to what should happen to this after i pass and those are the conversations that really i think are so important and one of the things originally when i would 
go to a conference and there'd be various of the auction companies advertised. And it was really common to see pictures with you know, books with artwork. And so I will tell you that even though I know differently, I would think of, I'll call the auction companies when I have a client with a lot of art. Well, I'm in Nebraska and, and instead I have clients with, you know, that are more likely to have gun collections. And so I was just going to ask you guys to share some of the different types of property that you do see on a regular basis other than your traditional artwork. Sure. So some of the different categories that we sell in addition to fine art, uh, we sell furniture and decorative objects, which would be your silver, your china. Uh, we also sell a lot of rugs, typically things that you would find in a household. You mentioned Nebraska. Arms and Armor is another category that we sell. We have Native American. We sell Western art. Uh, we sell sports memorabilia. Um, Molly, what else am I missing? We have over 52 categories that are represented in the 140 sales that we have every year. So there is never uh, a dull moment here. Well, I think there's even like wine as a category, isn't there? Or is it alcohol? But I know that I picked up like a wine catalog when I was at the Notre Dame Tax Institute. And I don't know if it was yours or somebody else's there, mm -hmm. but it's like, oh, yeah, that's right. And I know that you can go in sometimes to one of your locations and you'll have exhibits of different types of things. And so I just thought, again, I just wanted to sort of eliminate the concept. And, and you mentioned the memorabilia. And I think that you know, one of the things that I realized that a client called me that had a collection of Elvis Presley stuff. And it was a bunch of stuff that was looks like it was old, dust-covered, dirty, but it ended up being quite valuable. And so I believe one of the things that you guys can do is if somebody has a collection of some sort, you'd be able to at least do an assessment. Yeah, that's going to have no value. There's no point in having us appraise that. Or, hey, that might have some real value. We ought to have more conversation about that. Are there any other unique categories that either one of you can think of that just might be worth mentioning? Sure. Well, I should just for the record uh, state that we do not handle the wine or cars at Heinemann, but pretty much everything else that you would find in a home we sell. Jewelry is another major category that we see so much of in uh, private collections and, and in different estates. But in terms of the, the unique collections, that is what one of the most fun things about our jobs is that you always are finding these new and esoteric collections that people have spent years and years putting together. And we get to come in and see them after they've spent so, many, so much time and travel putting together. So we do, uh, that is really one of the, the fun aspects of our jobs. That's why I say like with myself is seeing some of that is just really like, oh, wow, it would have never occurred to me to collect that. Right. One was a nutmeg grinder collection that we saw years ago. Another was an erector set collection. Um, we did, did sell a, a huge collection of Elvis Presley memorabilia from the president of Elvis Presley's fan club. His uh, name was Gary Pepper. And every time somebody would join Elvis's fan club, he would send them a lock of Elvis's hair. So years later, after Elvis had passed away and after Gary Pepper passed away, the, the estate came up for auction and we were handling it. And so there was clothing that Elvis wore with images of him. There were all sorts of posters and movies and, and things like that. And we came across this, basically this clump of Elvis's hair and we had it 
uh, we had it dated and it was, it was proven that it was Elvis's hair. And I think it sold for something like $40,000 because his, his fans wanted to buy, uh, to be able to clone him. So <laughs> you never know what you're going to see. We are going to take a brief break from our episode for a word from one of our sponsors. If you had a dollar for every financial advisor that just wanted your money, your financial future would already be secure. At Foster Group, our team is different. One whose focus is on you and your dreams. Together, we'll create a strategy that helps you get there, wherever there is for you. Foster Group, your financial life truly cared for. Connect with us at fostergrp.com. Foster Group's written disclosure brochure as set forth in Part 2A of Form ADV, discusses advisory services and fees, is available at www.fostergrp.com. Okay, let's continue our episode. So I usually think there's like a common misnomer about almost every industry. Is that true of the auction industry? And if yes, what might it be? I always come back to uh, people are curious on how to bid in our sales. And so the bidding process, I think, can be a bit of a, uh, um, something mystical to people. But in, at our firm, there are four ways you can bid at an auction. Once you go through our, our registration process and you sign our, our, uh, our terms of sale where you're allowed to bid, but, um, you know, for us, you can come and you can bid in person. You can have a, a pet. You will, you'll receive a paddle and you'll be able to wave it in the air, just like you see in the movies. You can bid live over the telephone with a representative from our firm. So we'll call you a few lots before the, the one that you would like to bid on. And we'll actually talk to you live during the sale and we'll say, okay, the bid is with you at, at $50,000 and now it's against you at, at 52,000. Would you like to bid 55? So it's like you're there in the room, but you still have that privacy where you don't have to, to be there in person. And you can also bid, uh, you can bid online, which has become extraordinarily popular um, over the last many years. And then you can also leave what's called an absentee bid. Uh, where we will execute the highest amount that you were willing to go. We'll, we'll execute that bid on your behalf. And if the, the bidding exceeds that high number, then we'll thank you for being an underbidder. Um, but you'll, that's a, maybe some people who have maybe self-control problems, absentee bidding is a, a really good idea for you. But in terms of a misnomer, you know, when I started in this business, you know, about 18 years ago, there were a lot more people who came to the auctions because that was the best way to bid in the sales. You'd show up and the rooms would be very crowded and people would would be bidding, um, you know, nonstop. Today, most of that exists, that bidding exists online. And a lot of that is due to the real global nature of where our buyers are. So people aren't just from, you know, if the auction is taking place in Chicago, it's not just the people bidding in the in you know the Chicago area or the Midwest, or if it's in Palm Beach, it's not just Florida. We have people who are dialing in from all over the world for this. So the bidding, I would say, is the biggest thing. So I hate to dispel any ideas of you know crowded crowded rooms. Not that's not to say it doesn't happen. We we sold the estate of Lily Pulitzer several years ago in Florida, so we had about. 600 registered bidders and you can imagine how many of them came in their lily pullets or dresses to to buy something from her estate so it happens but 
the internet has really changed the game on, on bidding. And I would just add that some people think that it is private, that it's not open to the public, that you have to be a member to be able to bid at auction. And so that is one thing I always try to, to let friends and advisors know that it is absolutely open to the public and anybody can bid at auction. As I say, I'd be a person who didn't realize that at one point, but I have a, a girlfriend who's another trust and estate attorney. And whenever, whenever we travel, she knows where all the auction houses are. And she's just like, she buys all of her jewelry through that methodology. I'm like, wow. I okay. Love, I love that. We'd love to meet her. <laughs> you may have, but I'll make sure that happens. Okay. So <laughs> anyway, um, I want to talk a little bit about the appraisals and the importance of valuing that. So I would tell you that it's one of those really interesting things. And I kind of share the story that I have to make it up a little bit so I don't violate any confidentiality. But let's just say that I was visiting a client's home didn't realize that some people build their homes in what's called museum style, which this house was. And it had all these beautiful statutes and, you know, things like that. Well, being a person who isn't that big of a art collector type and, you know, I'm more into sports memorabilia and all that. So I don't have an appreciation for all the fine arts. I do have some really cool sports memorabilia, but I was in this house looking at these things, had no idea. And what they did is they said, oh, the studio of the artist that makes some of these is you know, downtown. You should go walk through it. So I went and walked through that studio later only to see the price tags on these statutes that I've been looking at in their home thinking, holy cow, I am so glad I didn't touch, breathe, or do anything near any of those things because two of those would exceed one estate tax exemption. So can you talk about how, you know, what you do and the process, why the, again, why the appraisal process is important in terms of estate taxes? I think it's one of the areas in planning that may get overlooked from time to time. Well, you've, you've touched on the biggest issue, and that is understanding the differences between values because values mean different things. Um, this is why we have a, a separate appraisals entity. So Heinemann appraisals is, is very separate from Heinemann auctions for a reason, because they have to be confidential and independent. Uh, it's led by a, a dear colleague of ours, Tim Luke, uh, who is a very well-known appraiser. Uh, and he, just to brag about him for a second, he was uh, recently the vice chair of the Appraisal Standards Board, which is part of the Appraisals Foundation, which is who Congress designates to maintain, uphold, interpret the USPAP, uh, which is the Uniform Standards of Professional Appraisal Practice, which is the really the standards that uh, qualified appraisals uh, require. But Tim will be the first one to, to tell you that really where we see, you know, the biggest issues is when people have a misunderstanding of what the value of the tangible personal property that they have. And it comes up even more in an estate. But you know, there's a big difference between what people will pay at retail prices, um, and those are typically where we start for insurance values. Those are very different from fair market values, uh, which is really uh, what the IRS uses to determine value for estate taxes. 
And then auction estimates typically straddle, but also are come a bit, a bit further because auction estimates need to be more conservative. They need, they're meant to really entice people to want to bid at an auction. So if we estimate something on the auction side too high, people won't really bother to even bid on the sale or register. And if you come too low, people are going to wonder what's wrong with it. So there's a real sweet spot to, to valuing things for auction. But I would say understanding the differences, not relying on, say, an insurance value or what someone paid for something to use that during the estate planning process. If they think, and we see this a lot with jewelry, um, with, with, with a, say, a big diamond, where it's absolutely normal for somebody to purchase a, a diamond ring and have it be, you know, half a million dollars. Uh, it's definitely a big mistake to say, okay, well, we'll sell it for half a million dollars at death and child one will get, you know, a quarter of a million and child two will get quarter of a million. We, we see that all the time. So I'm going to ask a question on that. So I, and I just want to kind of elaborate on one point that I think you're making. So when we look at assets for estate tax purposes, everybody has an exemption. It's $10 million. It's inflated. It's 12.94, something like that this year. And so, but when we're adding that up, we're adding up if they own, you know, real estate, that's going to be added. But these personal effects are added for purposes of federal estate taxes. And what I heard you say is, well, there's the value that like when I walked into that studio and there's a 5.2 million price tag, that's a retail price that may or may not be the value that's going to be for estate tax purposes. So there's a valuation when somebody dies, but let's go for a minute uh, to the question of, let's say that I own one of these very cool statutes and I want to give it to my child who has now bought this cool place and it'll work really well there because it's worth $5 million, I'm going to be using part of my lifetime exemption to transfer it. I assume you can help us appraise it for that purpose. And what would that appraisal look like? Yes. So that is a very good point. Uh, and what I think some clients, it is difficult to wrap your head around is that one object can have multiple values. So what Molly did refer to is that what, you know, an object, when you go into the store to replace it, you would pay that top price. And that is what you would want for an insurance purpose. If you had to go into a gallery, buy it without uh, without any time to kind of look for that at auction, you are going to pay a premium for that. And then the fair market value is really more defined as that secondary market. So if we were going to be, if you're going to gift that statute to an heir or, or a child, that would be something that you would need to document for the IRS. And we would be assigning a fair market value. And that is something that uh, at the $50,000 level or above, there is the IRS art advisory panel. And so they there is the potential that they may audit that and do a review of it at the end of the year. So they look at that for estate tax purposes, as well as for gift and donation appraisals. And so we are always going to be looking at comparables to be able to justify the values that we are assigning because people can either, that is going toward the estate tax amount that they would be paying at the end, or it might be for a tax write-off for, for gifting or donation. And so if I were to be working with a client and call you and we have this particular, well, I'm just going to stay with my statute example, 
And so what we wanted to do was, well, we are concerned about insurance. And if this got destroyed, we might need that insurance value. And we're going to want to make sure that's going to be a full replacement cost because we want to be able to replace it, assuming it's replaceable, which is a whole different issue, right? Which is going to be different from if I'm going to actually gift this to my child. But there, in terms of there are different values, but it actually, there's logic to it. There's support for it in the statutes in terms of what the definition of fair market value is for the purposes. But if I contact you about that, and and let's just say it's not me. Let's say like a client just calls you. Are you going to talk to them about which appraisal process is appropriate for them and how to make sure that they have an accurate appraisal for what they're seeking? Absolutely. We walk through that whole process with our clients and we ask, uh, starting out, what is the purpose of the appraisal? Sometimes we do provide both values. So we'll do a side-by-side comparison for clients that will include the replacement value as well as the fair market value. And that fair market value could be used for financial planning, estate tax planning, uh, for many different purposes. So a lot of times clients will ask for both so that they can have the current values for uh, for their insurance needs, and then for planning purposes, they they ask for the uh, for the fair market value. And a lot of times, clients will ask us, "Is it just? Is there a formula? Is it fifty percent of the retail replacement value? Is it twenty five percent?" And we we have to explain it really is case by case on as to what the object is. So you can't just say fine art. It really does depend on who is the artist, what is the medium. A contemporary work of art that is valued at $100,000 for replacement value might have a a very close fair market value. It might be worth close to $100,000 for fair market. A piano, a Steinway piano, for instance, that could be $100,000 if you were to go into the showroom and buy a brand new piano. That piano at auction would sell for close to $25,000. There is just not much of a secondary market. So you see a much bigger disparity between replacement value and fair market value for for pianos, for example. Jewelry we talked about a little bit. Uh, You could have a $100,000 diamond ring, and that might be worth $50,000 at auction, depending on is it from a notable designer, maker, uh, what are the materials that were used for that? So it does, there's a big variety of prices and it really, you do want to work with accredited appraisers that are going to be able to do that research and come up with the the exact value. And Mary, where we see people and families get into trouble is when you have G1 trying to equalize giving, uh, trying to make the tangible personal property, trying to split it up. If their goal is that they have three children and we see people try and say, well, we're going to give the painting to this child and we're going to give the diamond ring to this child and we're going to give the rest of the household contents to this child. And we think it's all about the same. If your goal is to give these children or your beneficiaries equal amounts, Trying to do that with assets, with hypothetical numbers, which fair market value numbers are hypothetical because these are, we haven't sold these things yet. It's really hard to do that where we see a big shift towards people having very good counsel and saying, okay, if none of these three beneficiaries are actually interested in the the stuff, which I joke I could give a speech called 
I can't believe my kids don't want my stuff. There's just that generational shift and wanting to inherit a lot of your, your, your parents or grandparents property. Um, but it's, it's a lot easier to split a check three ways than it is to split a painting three ways or a diamond ring three ways. So we've seen a big shift towards keeping the property together, selling it on behalf of three beneficiaries or through the estate, and then the proceeds being split. So that's a, a much more uh, transparent way of going through that process. And, and I'd say as somebody who helps a lot of pe- people through estates, it's always interesting to me. You can have some really big ticket items that nobody's interested in, but there's a family fight over the nativity set that was under the Christmas tree when somebody was in kindergarten, right? So I think, you know, from the perspective of an attorney who counsels clients on this, it's have a conversation about that. And personally, I like to really treat the personal property as separate from the rest of the estate. Say equalization in your hard assets, real estate, cash investments, personal property at some point have a conversation with your kids and get clear that we're not going to figure this out if there's something that's really important to you we're going to do that well you know if it's something that's worth about we might do some equalization but at the end of the day treat the personal property and the rest of the estate a little bit differently and they're different conversations well one last thing i'd like to ask you about is i'm sure you guys get some of the fun of being involved in some of the celebrity estates who may or may not have been handled in a way and have or and or get tied up in nasty divorce settlements. I can think of several interesting names and in the era of artificial reproduction and a whole lot of other things, there's heirs that show up all over the place after the fact. But are there some examples of estates that you might want to mention that would give us some guidance on this is maybe not the way to do it? And so think about doing something that's a little more efficient or helpful after you pass. I would say one of the recent examples that I think comes to uh, comes to my mind is Prince's estate. That was one where there wasn't a uh, a plan in place, and so we always encourage clients to have these discussions with their advisors early and to title assets in a way that is they're putting them in trust and they're they're doing this ahead of time. So with Prince's estate, that was one where we're. Obviously, there's been in the news a lot of uh, a lot of new heirs that have been coming to the table saying that they have a claim to, to the personal property. And the need for appraisals at a very detailed level was something that has been very interesting just from from an observational standpoint. We we do a lot of appraisals all over the country. We do some international projects and some for for clients that have multiple homes, multiple uh, storage facilities. And if you don't have records going into it at, you know, when there is an estate situation, it is something that can be, uh, there's a lot of emotions at play. There is a lot of moving parts that are going on. And, and so there, it is very interesting. And there, like I said, the emotion, you talked about some of the things uh, I think you were alluding to sentimental value. And that is, so true. We find that clients all all the time are wanting the things that they remember their mother, maybe a diamond ring that they the mother wore, or one time it was a family that wanted the fireplace tools because they remembered their father stoking the fire uh, at the holidays. And that was something that was more important to them than this Asian dish that sold for $100,000, they were fighting over the brass fireplace tools 
that were worth literally less than $40. So it's fascinating. It's just something that I think uh, in, in our industry, uh, there is, you can't really put a price on some of those things with the sentimental value. We are there to assign values for what would trans, you know, how be passed on in the secondary market. But the, the sentimental value is something completely different. So there's the value for estate tax purposes, and then there's a separate value in terms of what people want. And I would just say that a lot of times there's a lot of assumptions on the part of my clients. And at some point, I'm not a big like go disclose everything you're doing to your kids type of person. But at some point, when it comes to those type of things, you can prevent the fights about the nativity set by talking about it while you're still alive. Well, do either of you have any last thoughts as we come to the end of our time today? You know, one thing that we've seen just a constant increase in requests for is that we have a lot of clients who are very charitably inclined. Um, we have clients who have, they're very passionate, whether it's towards a particular art institution or towards a university or a school or an organization that's near and dear to their heart. And one thing that we're always just so excited to do is to be able to work with clients either during their lifetime or after death uh, to be able to help support those institutions. So just being able to have the ability to express through your estate plan that certain assets that they have are going to be either gifted directly, gifted outright to a, a library or a museum. Um, that's always such a, a pleasure for us to be able to prepare those donation appraisals, which have to be prepared within 60 days of, of that donation. Um, but we we always love to see where where people, uh, what they're, you know, what they, where they would like to see these, these things end up. Um, alternatively, we love it when um, we're able to work with clients who, say, have a jewelry collection or a books and manuscript collection um, where they would like to sell the collection with the proceeds of the sale directly benefiting, you know, they could benefit PAWS or, you know, a, a certain school. We had the thrill of working with um, the Rumsey Hall School in Washington, Connecticut uh, a couple of years ago. They had a uh, parent of, of some of the, uh, with some children who had attended the school. They had gifted a, a painting by a, an artist named Martin Wong. Uh, and uh, at the time of donation, which I think was around 2005, Martin Wong's market was not particularly, uh, it was, it was new. It was, it was a, it was young. It had not, things had, had really not circulated onto that secondary market. Um, but in those years, uh, and he died very young as well. He was a Chinese American, but he, when we worked with the school who was looking to sell the painting because they had found out that they had had this wonderful work, a large, large work in it, that was a gift to them. And we said, oh, well, when we were talking to the, the school, we said, well, where did you have this painting all these years? And they said, well, it was in the 10 to 12 year old boys dormitory. And we were all, we, we all gasped that this is a, a, a heavy six figure painting uh, that was in a, a, a boys dormitory where um, I, from what I've heard, there's maybe several indoor lacrosse games or Nerf ball fights or things. And so to think that this painting was intact through all of those years of, of students uh, living in that dorm, 
and we were able to to bring it to auction uh, and it sold for uh, I think a record price it was sold for 1.1 million dollars and to think oh my goodness that this is something that that has been living with these boys who and apparently it was a dorm favorite they posed for pictures in front of this every year so it was so wonderful us for to be able to to have heard that story learned that and and even though that, you know from when the time it was gifted, I think it was worth around $5,000 um, that within about 15, 16 years later, this this piece had had really had sold uh, for $1.1 million. So I'll just end with the importance of updating appraisals and that you cannot have, you know, appraisals that you could rely on from 30, 40 years ago. And in some categories like contemporary art, where markets shift very quickly, it is important to keep going back to 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 be able to update those appraisals. So your advisors are, are aware of of big changes. But that was a, a happy ending and one of our favorite stories. An excellent point. Well, thanks to both of you for participating today. As we reach the end of our episode, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Foster Group, Veterans Victory, and Carson Private Client. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to today's episode, and stay tuned for our weekly releases. The Doug and Birch Legal Visionaries podcast is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Doug and Birch Legal Visionaries podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Doug and Birch Legal Visionaries podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you may have. A Huda Media Production.